All right, as the kids make their way out, you would join with me in reading Jonah's chapters, Jonah chapters 1 and 2. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship, and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet shall I, I shall look again upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you in your holy temple. Those who who pay regard to vain idols forsake the hope of the steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. I have to get the stage in the right spot or I'll fall, or the stand in the right spot or fall off the stage. And so that's why it's got to be right, right there. 
Uh, let's, let's pray together, and we'll jump into Jonah 1 and 2 this morning. Father, we thank you that you are good and gracious and merciful, that you, you abound in steadfast love, that even in a story where you are chasing one of your prophets who's, who's rebelling and, and running from you, we see evidence of your grace as you pursue him and bring him back. And instead of snuffing out his life, you save it multiple times. Father, we pray this morning that you would, you would send your spirit to, to help us to, to, to learn from and, and understand and, and be encouraged by and, and challenged by your word this morning. That the words of, of Jonah that you've preserved for us. Would, would be beneficial to us and edifying to us as, as individuals and, and as a church. Jesus, we thank you that you, you came to save us. That even though we were unworthy and, and undeserving, you, you came for us. So in your name we pray. Amen. So, Jonah is our, our fifth book in the Minor Prophets. Um, and time, time frame wise, this, this moves us back in time. So, you know, we've kind of been, been flipping around back and forth uh, in the Minor Prophets. Uh, so like Amos, uh, Jonah is prophesying in the time of Jeroboam II. This is around 760 BC. So we were, you know, in the 500s. Now we're back in the 700s. And this, the reason why this matters is because it's, it's during that time, during the reign of Jeroboam II, that Israel enjoyed a whole lot of prosperity, uh, Assyria in the north was a lot weaker. They were kind of distracted by other things, so they didn't really care about Israel in the south. And because of that, Jeroboam was able to kind of expand their borders and so, the, so that they, they got to the point that they were under David and Solomon. Like thing, things were going really well. Like the kingdom kind of reached new heights under him. And in 2 Kings, we actually read this. We, we hear about that from Jonah in 2 Kings. It says, he restored the border of Israel from Lebo Hamath as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath Hefer. And so, in 2 Kings, when we read about Jeroboam II's reign, we hear that he expanded those borders. Things went really well, and we, we find that out because Jonah is the one who told them about that. So things were, were economically good, and they were politically good in Israel. But as we've seen from, from Hosea and Amos, things were not spiritually good in Israel. Things were not morally good in Israel. The, the, the kings uh, and the rulers and the religious elite, they oppressed the poor and needy. They, they, they led them to idolatry. They did all kinds of bad things. They thought that they were better than all the other nations, and they thought God was going to come and kind of elevate them and, and take out everybody else. But as we've seen in going through the minor prophets, that's not what's going to happen. God is going to bring judgment to them. And the reason why this matters specifically for Jonah is because Jonah is this prophet who gets angry because God is potentially, he thinks, going to show grace and mercy to one of those nations. He doesn't like the idea that God is sending him to the Ninevites because God is only supposed to judge them. He's not supposed to potentially save them. And so 
He knows, as we read in his prayer, right, that salvation belongs to the Lord, but, but he maybe wants a little control over who the Lord doles that salvation out to. And so, uh, this is kind of the, the setting in which we enter into Jonah. And, and I'm excited for us to go through Jonah because kind of as, as literature, Jonah is, is pretty fantastic. Like, I think it's, it's one of, it's not the only one, but it's one of the best places in Scripture where we get a, a story that a kid can completely understand and, and retell. Right? They, they can tell it word for word, like, this is what happens in Jonah, this is what God does, this is his experience. But also, there's a whole lot of deep things going on underneath that story. Jonah uses a whole lot of literary devices. Like, it's, it's, it's a phenomenal book. And so I'm glad we get to go through it together. And also, just a, a disclaimer before we get into it, I'd say there's probably like an 80% chance that some point today, I'm going to mix Jonah up with Noah. I've been doing it all week in my head. And so, like, if I say Noah, like, just, just know I mean Jonah. Noah was on the ark. Jonah was in the whale. But they both did things with water. So, like, they're, they're pretty much the same guy. Um, last, before we read it, uh, or before we go through it, there's a lot of people that will say this story is just, just too ridiculous, right? There's this guy who gets swallowed by a big fish, lives three days, three nights in the belly of that fish, and then gets puked out onto dry land. A whole lot of people will read this in the Bible and say, like, that's made up. It's not true. It's not scientific, whatever. To them, I would say this. In Matthew 12, 38 through 41, we read this. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So Jesus... In Matthew, while he was on the earth, he verifies the, the truth, the historical accuracy that Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights, and he connects it to, to his own death and resurrection. So if we, or say a biblical scholar, says that the story of Jonah is false, they're also saying that Jesus is a liar, which... I don't know that that's something that I would want to say. And it's not something that they should say. So it's, it's, a, it's a crazy story. But, but it's, it's no more unbelievable than the other miraculous things that happen in Scripture. And when we, when we think about miracles in Scripture and people saying, like, oh, that's unbelievable, one of my, one of my favorite quotes to bring up is this one from this guy named Rudolf Boltmann. Uh, don't put it on the screen yet, but uh, Rudolf Boltmann... <laughs> He's this guy who, uh, he was a German New Testament scholar, and, and he, was, he was brilliant. But he had this problem with Scripture, specifically the New Testament. For him, the New Testament was, was, was just a, too supernatural. It was too unbelievable. You know, he, he, was a, he was a modern man who lived in, you know, the 1940s and 50s, and so how could he possibly believe that? And so he, he went off on this, this quest 
to demythologize the New Testament. And what that means is let's just get rid of anything that's supernatural, anything that's hard to believe. And once we get rid of all of that stuff, what we'll be left with is a book that, that the modern man can read and understand and believe, um, which I would argue means that you, you basically end up with nothing. But he's got this quote which says, it is impossible to use electrical light and the wireless and to avail ourselves of modern medical and surgical discoveries and at the same time to believe in the New Testament world of spirits and miracles. And so, this is what he says. And for him, the the wireless, it, it meant the radio. But I think that if we this morning, we're to get in a time machine, which doesn't exist, so we can't do that. But travel back in time to, to old Rudolph when he's, he's writing this in 1953 and tell him, hey, let me tell you what wireless really means. In our day and age, we're sitting in a room where the live stream of our service is being sent around the world through the air. Right? The, the words that I'm saying, the, 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 what we're doing, all of our service is being sent everywhere through the air. Like for him, the idea that you could beam someone's voice or music across the world through radio waves was, was insane. He would find what we do with technology completely unbelievable. Right? He would think we were crazy. Even if we brought him back with us and showed him everything, he would be like, that's impossible to believe. The point is that the Bible isn't any more unbelievable than all the stuff that we base our lives on all the time. Right? It, even now, with all the technology we have, there, there, are, there are so much of the oceans that we haven't even explored. We know far less about the way this world works than the maker of the heavens and the earth. And so for us to sit in a study and say, like, it's just too unbelievable is pretty ridiculous. Hebrews says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. We didn't see with our own eyes Jonah getting swallowed by the fish or or vomited up on the earth. But we believe things all the time that we can see that are, that are just as ridiculous. And so let's put our faith in the word of God and trust that what it says is true because we don't have any reason to doubt him or his word. So Jonah chapter one. Jonah runs and he gets eaten by a big fish. So the first thing we find out is that the word of the Lord comes to Jonah. He's the son of Amittai. And the Lord tells Jonah... He says, I want you to go to Nineveh uh, because the, the evil of the Ninevites has, has come up before the Lord. So, so the Lord has heard about the Ninevites. They're, they're evil. And so because of that, God wants Jonah to, to go to them. And Jonah evidently knows enough about the Lord to know that, that it's not just going to be the, the judgment getting poured out on him them that, they, that he wants there's probably going to be some grace and mercy in there. So Jonah, he, he doesn't do that. Nineveh, and I think we have a map. Nineveh was in the kind of northeast 
of Israel. So that's where Jonah is supposed to go. But instead, we find out that he goes south to Joppa and gets on a boat going pretty much as far away as he possibly can go. Right? He, as a prophet, is supposed to take God's message where God tells him to, but instead of doing that, he goes the opposite direction and he runs and he runs and he runs. He gets on a ship that's going to Tarshish. And, and, and specifically, in the text, it says that he, he went away from the presence of the Lord. Right? So he, he's, he's not just not doing what God tells him to do. He's not just going the opposite direction of where God told him, told him to go. He is actively trying to get away from God and his presence. This is not a good place for him to be. And so because of this, the Lord sends a, a ship to, to bring him, or no, sorry. The Lord sends a storm to bring him back. And in the midst of the storm, right, the, the, the mariners, the crew, they're, they're freaked out. They think the ship's going down, and so they, they cry out to their gods. They, they hurl cargo into the sea. They're, they're trying to help the, the ship stay afloat. But Jonah, this guy who's on the run, this guy who, who actually knows what's happening, is down at the bottom of the ship. He's asleep. He doesn't need to worry. He's just running from God. What could possibly go wrong. The captain, who's freaked out as well, goes down to, to wake up Jonah, and he tells him to, to cry out to his God that they might not perish. And so it seems like what, what the crew is doing at this point is they're just trying to cover their bases, right? They all kind of cry out to their individual gods. They're lightening the ship. They're, they're doing what they can to try to stay afloat. And then, oh, hey, there's this guy in the basement. Let's make sure he also cries out to his God. Then they decide that what they're going to do is they're going to cast lots. They're, they're going to try to figure out whose fault it is that they're in this situation. And so the lot falls to Jonah, which is not a surprise because the Lord is in control of how the lot falls. So they interrogate him. They say, they say why is this happening? Who, who are you? What, what do you do? What, what country are you from? Who's your family? Now look at verse 9. And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. So he basically says, I worship the one who's responsible for this storm. And they know, from what he tells them later, that, that he's running from the Lord. So they, they realize that they're in trouble. And they realize that it's Jonah's fault. So they say, what is this that you have done? Jonah, in, in, in running from the Lord, in, in failing to go to the Ninevites to preach the message that God has given him, he's not only put his life in jeopardy, but also the life of everybody on this ship. And so they ask him, what should we do? What should we, what should we do to you to get, to get the storm to go away? And Jonah says what any reasonable person who's on a boat in the midst of a storm would say. He says, throw me overboard. He would rather be in the bottom of the sea than preaching good news to the Ninevites. He says, the sea will be satisfied when it, when it gets me. But, but, but look at how the people respond. They say, it says, nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land. So these, these Gentiles 
These, these pagans, these worshipers of false gods, when Jonah says, just toss me in and things will be fine, they say, no, we're going to try to save your life even if it costs us ours. These people who Jonah doesn't want God to save, try to save him. They value his life, but, but they can't. It says that the sea grew more and more tempestuous around them. So they call out to the Lord, they ask him for forgiveness, and they toss Jonah in. It says the sea ceased from its raging. Which, you know, we talk about like when Jesus does that in the New Testament, right? And how insane that would have been to see this guy who just, you know, snaps his fingers and, and, and a storm just disappears. But to me, this is, this is much crazier, right? They toss this guy in the water, and then it's over. Next, says the Lord appoints a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and he was in his belly three days and three nights. But before we focus on, on Jonah, we can't miss what happens to the men on the ship. It says, Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. So these guys go from just kind of crying out to random gods, hoping for help, to worshiping the one true God. Jonah runs from the Lord because he doesn't want him to save Gentiles, and God uses his running from him to save Gentiles. He saves despite the rebellion and rejection of his prophet. He doesn't need Jonah to save these people. Just does it. So he's in this fish, and like this isn't a, a scientific identification. So when people are like, it's Jonah and the whale, don't be like, well, well, technically it says fish in the Bible. And so it's not a whale, because a whale's a mammal, not a fish. I think it's just it's a it's a swimming sea creature. It's a whale, and like, you know, if you were out in a boat and saw a big whale swim up, you'd be like, hey, look at that fish. And then someone who's annoying would point out that it's actually a mammal. <laughs> He's in its belly three days and three nights. And I'm sure if you wanted to, there are resources out there that can tell you, you know, scientifically, biologically, anatomically, like how Noah could be in the belly of a big fish and survive and all this stuff. But, but we're, we don't really care about that this morning. So if you want to go find that, go find that. I think the point is that this is a miracle which is when God does something that we can't fully explain or reproduce. And so us trying to figure out all the ins and outs of how this happened kind of defeats the purpose of it. Instead, we're supposed to look at it and be like, it's amazing that God did this. Let's, let's wonder at what God did, not think we can explain it or find it out. So in chapter 2, Jonah is, is in the belly of the great fish, and he, he calls out to the Lord. He, he prays. Like he, he really does what any of us would do if we find ourselves in this situation. Right? We would ask God for help because there's nothing we could do to get ourselves out. And we have a record of his, his prayer. He, he calls out to the Lord in the midst of his distress, and the Lord answers him. He, 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 is, he feels like he's dead, right? He's in, he's in Sheol. He's in the belly of this fish, which might as well be a grave to him. And he says, the Lord heard his voice. And I think that we should find comfort in this. 
Uh, because no matter what kind of situations we find ourselves in in our life, I'm not sure it gets much worse than in a giant fish's stomach. And yet even in that place, Jonah can call out to the Lord and the Lord hears him. And on top of that, why is Jonah in that place? He's in that place because he's running from the Lord. Because specifically, he he wanted to get away from the Lord's presence. So he rejected God. And yet, the moment he calls out to him, God is there with an answer. He answers his prayer in his distress. And in the first part of the prayer, Jonah acknowledges two things. The first thing that he does is he, he makes it clear that he, that he understands why he's in the situation that he's in. Right? There, there's no questioning from him. There's no like, God, how could you do this to me? How, how could you put me in this place? How could you let this happen? He, he fully gets why God did this. It's because he rebelled and he ran away. The second thing he does is he acknowledges that God saved him. He says, while his life was fainting away, he remembered the Lord. The Lord brought him out of the pit. He knows that, that only the Lord could have orchestrated these events. He, he, he orchestrated the storm. He orchestrated the fish to, to save him in the sea. And then he eventually, you know, saves him from being in the belly of the fish. He goes on to speak some truth about, about who God is in verses 8 and 9. It says, Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. He's saying here that those who worship idols, those who worship false gods, those who turn away from the one true God, they, they, they don't experience the saving love of the Lord. But he is not going to be like that. He's going to sacrifice with thanksgiving. He's going to fulfill his vows. He's going to go do what the Lord wants him to do. He's going to be faithful to the call that God has on his life. He's, he's willing to go to Nineveh because he understands that salvation belongs to the Lord, that God gets to save whoever he wants to save, and that Jonah isn't in charge of that. And the Lord responds to Jonah's prayer by having him puked up onto dry land. Next week, in, in Jonah 3 and 4, we're going to find out what happens with, with Jonah, with the Ninevites. Uh, spoiler alert, like Jonah, Jonah still doesn't get it. He still gets mad when God saves people that he doesn't want him to save. I think, practically, there, there's a few things we can take away from, from this first part of Jonah. The first is that running from the Lord, it just doesn't make any sense. Like, I, I know, I know we're, we're all still going to do it. But let's just recognize that it's, that it's ridiculous. Right? Because if we try to get away from the presence of the Lord, we, we fail. Because, because he's, he's, he's there. Right? The Lord was with Jonah on the sea. The Lord was with Jonah in the belly of the fish. He was with him when he got puked up onto dry land. Just because he went south instead of northeast didn't mean that God was like, oh, where's Jonah? 
And just because we're not doing what God calls us to do doesn't mean that God doesn't know where we're at. Doesn't mean that he doesn't know what's going on with us. Right? I think that sometimes, like when we, when we fall short of what God wants us to do, when we reject him and what he wants for us, instead try to do something else, and then we, we finally come back to God, we think we we're giving him information that he doesn't know about us. But he knows exactly where we've been. He knows exactly the, the lies we've been believing and the lies we've told ourselves. So it, it, it doesn't make sense for us to flee. And I think that's also should be really encouraging to us. Because it's not like God is a stalker who's just kind of following us around to know what's going on. He's there because he cares for us and wants what's best for us. It, it reminds us that he'll never leave us or forsake us. Even when we reject him and run from him, he's still there. The second practical thing I think we can take away is this it's a reminder that the Lord hears and answers our prayer. Jonah, even when he's running, even when he's rejected God, even when he's in the belly of a giant fish, he calls out to the Lord, and the Lord hears, and the Lord answers. Right? I think we, get, we spend so much of our prayer time trying to get God to hear us without realizing that he already does. He is, he is there, and he answers. The third thing I think we should take away from this is that we should not write off people that we think are, are undeserving or, or beyond saving. Jonah is in, in this place because that's what he's doing. He doesn't think the Ninevites should get to hear a message of grace and mercy. The people on the ship, he doesn't care about their lives because they're just pagans. Yet God uses Jonah's running to save them, to bring them to a knowledge of himself. These people that, that Jonah wrote off, God had plans for. Salvation does belong to the Lord. And we don't get to decide who he gives it to. And so let's just believe and live like he can give it to anyone especially the people that we think aren't deserving of it. Because the reality is, that's our story. But more than, more than those three things, and, and we'll see this more next week, I, I think this passage and this book, they give us a, a strong reminder that Jesus is a much better Savior than we would be. Right? Jonah makes sense to us, if, if, if I think we're honest with ourselves. Right? He doesn't like the Ninevites, and so he doesn't want good things for them. He's all about going to deliver a message of judgment. Right? He's all about the day of the Lord coming 
for the Ninevites. But he doesn't want that to include salvation. So he, he runs from even the prospect of them being given grace and mercy. Jesus, on the other hand, he doesn't, he doesn't move away from our unworthiness. He doesn't move away from, from us being undeserving. He doesn't shudder at the thought of us being given grace. He comes down to us to show us grace and mercy, to make a way for us to be shown grace. Jonah puts himself and others in, in harm's way to avoid bringing a message of hope and salvation to his enemies. Jesus took harm on himself to, to swing open the door of salvation for his enemies. Jonah was willing to die so that the Ninevites would not hear that they could avoid death and judgment. And Jesus was willing to die so that the Ninevites, so that other sinners like, like them and like us could have a way to avoid death and find salvation in him. And like we, we see that mercy even shown to Jonah in the story. Right? The, the moment Jonah is like, no God, I'm going to get away from you, God should have snuffed out his life. Right? If, if we had that power, that's probably what we would have done. But God let him run. He let him get on the boat. He sent the storm. He could have used the storm to take him out. He didn't. He let the guys throw them in. He saved the men on the ship. And then he appointed a fish to come along and, 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 and save Jonah from death in the ocean. Right? There, there are so many points along the way God could have snuffed out his life. But he saved them. He showed Jonah mercy. There's not anybody in this story that's shown more grace and mercy and patience than Jonah. And I think that, that what we're going to see next week at the end, I think that the fact that Jonah is, is in Scripture is evidence of the fact that he finally understood that. He finally got the fact that he has been shown more grace and mercy and patience than anyone else. I think the Lord finally got him to a place to where he was really okay with salvation belonging to the Lord, with God saving people that he didn't like and didn't think deserved it because he knew that he was unworthy, that he was undeserving, and yet God had shown him so much grace and mercy. I think it's the same for us. I think what, what, what Jonah should do for us is it should hold up a mirror to us to help us see who we really are. That even though we think that we're, we're people that, that are deserving of God's grace, we're really not. That it's only because we have a Savior who, who's better than we are who came to save people like us instead of rejecting those who don't deserve. And so as we continue in worship, let's remember both who we are and also who Jesus is. Let's pray.
Father, I thank you that you preserved Jonah's life. That you let him run and, and brought him back and, and sent him to the Ninevites so that even in the Old Testament, we could see a message of grace and mercy go to the nations. We pray that you would help us this morning to see the ways in which we falsely believe that that we deserve your salvation and others around us don't. That we deserve grace and mercy and patience and others around us don't. And that you would use Jonah's example to remind us of who we really are and also of who you are. That that you are always there, always bringing us back to yourself and away from who we would be without you. We pray that as we continue in worship this morning that you would would stir our affections for who Jesus is and what he's done for us. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.